You know, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Deuteronomy class. Uh, I guess it could also be, and these are the words class. That's the Hebrew title for the book of Deuteronomy is just the first few words. And these are the words. And just as a reminder, while we're going through some things here in this section of Scripture, if you have any questions uh, along the way, feel free to, you know, raise your hand or just start talking. And uh, I want to answer any questions that are on your mind or fill in any context that might have been in a previous lesson that you weren't a part of. Uh, Today, we're going to be seeing Moses' exposition of the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And as we've talked about the Ten Commandments or the the Ten Words, there's a a logic and an interconnectedness to them. I've drawn this chart up, you know, several times, how Commandments 1 and 2 are connected over to 5. So how loving God and not having idols is connected to honoring parents, which has to deal with the, the bigger idea of, you know, if you're honoring God as an authority, you're honoring all delegated authorities. And this, the third commandment, uh, to not take the Lord's name in vain. It's like, well, how do you live out, you know, loving God and representing his name right? Well, last week, it's by not murdering, you prize life. And Today, we'll be looking at commandment seven, you know, not committing adultery, which is this concept of loving God by living in purity is what I've titled this. And that goes on with you shall not uh, steal, you shall not bear false witness. And then the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, connecting over to not coveting. Uh, one One of the things I wanted to mention that, just to make sure that it's clear as how you're seeing. These, these are all connected. They're not connected just like this, but you have this concept of they're moving down. Uh, uh, they're building on one another. You have one and two and three and then four, the Sabbath command. You remember we had talked about how the Sabbath teaches us God owns all time. So you're to use time in such a way that honors him. Well, how do you honor him with your, your time? Well, all, all of these, all of this stuff, you know, this is how you're, uh, wait, yeah, I got five up there. I know it's teeny tiny, but that's where it belongs. And so how, how you use your time connects into all of those commandments, and each commandment is connected to one another side by side. You're going to hear that as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 22. You're going to go, wait, are we still on the, you know, honoring life sort of idea or the purity idea? And the answer is yes, they're, they're connected to each other. You know, that's the point. And one of the words that we hear throughout Scripture that can be kind of confusing, well, there's a few words, uh, this idea of holy. What does, it, what does it mean to be Holy. What does the word holy mean? Yeah, set apart, separate, you know, consecrated. There's some other ways that this idea is 
talked about in scripture, this has to deal with order. That's how God has ordered things. You remember on the seventh day of creation when God rested, you know, he, everything was holy. Everything was ordered exactly how he wanted it to be and was, you know, at rest in him. And the other word that probably is the hardest for us to understand that this concept is that word clean, which doesn't mean a necessarily sinful or not sinful, but it's, you know, is it ordered according to God's original intent or not? So you can have things that are unclean and not sinful, like childbirth would be an example of that. Having a child is not uh, sinful, but it's unclean. Things are out of order in how they're going to be in the future when everything is redeemed. No, there's not going to be more people being born. So all that, just to reiterate, those, those concepts are connected. And what we're looking at as we follow these through these commandments is how God has ordered things in his creation. When we're to, to live according to his created order because that's how things are supposed to work. So we're right at this section in Scripture, as I had mentioned, Deuteronomy 22, if you want to join me in your copy of God's Word. A lot of this, I'll be referencing it where I'm at. I won't read through all of it, but I'll point out some certain verses as we work through parts of it. So beginning here in chapter 22, Deuteronomy 22, to give you a little context and overview of this topic of adultery and how it connects back to the third commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. How, how do you think not committing adultery connects back to not taking the Lord's name in vain And commandment number three? You can take a stab at it, Andrew. Yeah, it, it dishonors God because it, it mis misrepresents him. You know, that, that's not his name. His name is not unfaithfulness. His, his name is faithfulness. Therefore, we image him and represent him by living faithfully. You know, he's holy. He's pure. And so we live in holiness and impurity. You know, the, some of the other bigger concepts that are that were related that we studied in the past and not taking the Lord's name in vain has to do with keeping oaths. You know, you're keeping your word because you have a good name, a trustworthy name, a faithful name, or not mixing certain things. You know, we read all these laws that they weren't to mix certain fabrics, certain foods and different things. And it's not that it's inherently bad to do some of those things, but in the culture in which the Israelites lived, it, it helped to communicate to them and others around them that uh, there's certain things that don't belong together. God has ordered certain things to function uh, a certain way. And so the books of 
Genesis and Leviticus are very much involved in the passage we're going to be looking through. Uh, Genesis, because it, this involves God's created order. So I'll read a commandment, you know, why, why, why can't a man wear a woman's clothes or a woman wear a man's clothes? Well, because God has made a man to wear man's clothes and a woman to wear uh, woman clothes. But this also has to deal with holiness. And that's the tie back into Leviticus and things which God says are clean, which are according to his order, his instruction for how his world is to work. And you might remember that when the food laws were given back in Leviticus, uh, the passage I'm referencing, it's, it's Leviticus 11.44. It's around that area. If, you, if you're taking notes, Leviticus 11.44, this text says, For I am Yahweh your God, therefore set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am holy. So you see that? This idea of holiness is you're set apart to something. You're to be set apart to God. And Well, why are you to be holy to God? Because he's holy. Because you're to, to image him and to show something about his uniqueness. And the passage goes on, You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that move on the earth for I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God thus you shall be holy for I am holy so I did that you you were redeemed not to live however you want but you were redeemed and given the privilege of living under God's instruction according to his created order he says, this is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to separate. I want you to hear that. That's, you know, the, the reason here is that they're to separate between the unclean and the clean. So living a holy life, you, you could say it involves discernment. You can tell the difference between right and almost right. Uh, you can tell the difference between what's according to, to God's order and what's a distortion of that. So all of the purpose of this instruction is holiness is so you can make that sort of separation. You, you can part things out and come to a conclusion that's informed by God's word and how you're to think about something and how you're to live in any circumstance. So the background to these ideas of holiness and purity is found in the, the ability to be able to separate between unclean and clean, uh, to separate between you know what God wants and doesn't want. You know what he likes and he doesn't like. And because uh, of making those separations, that means you can't mix certain things. There's certain things that don't go together because of that. Now... I get some of this is uh, ju just conceptual right now. We're going to have some examples to kind of work through this, and you have some questions along the way. Feel free to, to ask those. Otherwise, I'll probably just keep talking really fast and just moving on all the way to the end. So beginning here in 22, in the first 12 verses, so 22, 1 through 12, it's focused on this idea of purity and being unmixed and it's a introduction and a transition between the prizing life issue and the living impurity issue and the, the way that you honor life the way that you prize life connecting back to commandment six is by living in purity uh, 
And so this is teaching us how adultery relates back to God's character, which relates back to creation. So why, why do we live in, in, in faithfulness or impurity? Because well, God is faithful and pure. How does that relate to his creation? That's how he made things. That's how he wants things to be. But we also know we have fallen out of that. Uh, we, we have sinned and we have uh, the wages of sin, which is death and all sorts of other consequences and troubles in life because of that. And so you see, this is not just about the concept of sexual adultery, but not mixing things uh, that, that shouldn't be mixed together. It includes spiritual adultery. So the Israelites weren't to say, well, we have an altar and the Canaanites also have an altar and we'll just combine how they do their altar thing and our altar thing and that'll be okay. It's like, no, those things don't mix. Uh, they're to be separate. One is, one is clean, one is unclean. So one way to, to see this section of diverse laws here is you keep seeing two kinds of things. You know, verse 9, you see two kinds of seed. Verse 11, there's two kinds of thread and they don't belong together. Or verse 1, we have, uh, there's a neighbor's animal. So that you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep straying away and ignore them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Well, why do you do that? Well, if, if the ox is out of, out of place, it needs to be back in place. You know, it's not your ox, it's your brother's ox. And he's, if he's at your place, but he belongs at his place, he needs to go back to his place and not stay at your place. Uh, everything has its place. And this is how adultery is to be viewed as well. One person should not be intruding into the marriage of another because the, the family is sacred. And when there's deviance there, the dignity of not only that family, but every person that's linked to that person in life is affected by it somehow. Uh, the dignity of a, a whole group is threatened when it's infiltrated by persons who don't belong there. So now with your brother's ox, Mac and picking back up in verse 2 there, it says, if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall be with you until your brother searches for it, then you shall give it back to him. Well, one of the ways you, you know, prize life with your brother's ox or donkey is, that, well, you, you care for it, even though it's, you know, just an ox. Well, it, it's a life that God has created and it belongs to your brother. This is a sign of loving your neighbor. You're like, well, who's my brother? Who, who's my neighbor? Well, it's, it's the guy who owns that ox, <laughs> you know? And you need to take that in consideration. So you're caring for the life that is there, but you also recognize this isn't yours to keep. This is not dinner. Dinner did not just walk into your yard. Uh, but this is also not yours to just leave it without care. You don't just see it and be like, man, this is inconvenient. And, uh, you know, I got a burn pile going and I'm planning to go to the, the Chick-fil-A and spend my life savings today. That's how much it costs for one of them chicken sandwiches. Uh, God created things with a specific order. That's that idea of clean. That 
He made things clean with a specific order, with a specific place, and with a specific function. And when we abide by these structures that God has built into his creation, that is holiness. When we're living according to God's created order. So the ox, so you're talking, you know, he doesn't belong at your field or your house. He does need to be cared for and brought back to your brother or neighbor. So there's a proper place for everything. Now, some of you are going to cringe at this statement and some of you are going to love it. But it's that great organizational quote, a place for everything and everything in its place. Some people, they run their house like that. and It's fun to go around, just move things around and see how they respond. I don't run my house like that personally, but the, it does uh, capture the, the, the concept that's here in this passage. There is a place for everything in God's creation, and everything is to be in its place and not in other places or mixed in other ways. So... Maybe you, you organizational sort of people feel really justified in that. <laughs> God runs his world like that. He has a place for everything and everything's to, to be in its place and uh, unmixed. And so God is here teaching Israel. He's a God of order who puts everything in its proper place. So don't mix things that don't belong together and don't put things out of place. Now, what would be another example of that? If you look at verse 5, it says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. So, you know, there's to be no cross-dressing because everything has a proper order. So you're not to take something um, from what it ought to be and pervert it. So that'd be another word for something that's you know, unclean, it's perverted because it's outside of God's order. And it gives a miscommunication about God because God says male and female, he created them. And he made us in his image. And when that's blurred or confused or mixed in any way, it perverts something that God wants to communicate about himself in the way that he has chosen to image himself in the world. So an ox belongs somewhere, certain clothing belongs with a certain gender, and it, how a person dresses, uh, it communicates something. You know, it communicates, you know, if they think a, an event is uh, important enough for that. It communicates, uh, well, what sort of things they associate with in life, uh, it can even communicate authority, which when you read that strange passage with Paul to the Corinthians about the, the women and their head coverings and stuff like that, you're like, I don't want to have a head covering. And what is he talking about? Well, the, the idea is within that culture, the, a head covering signified, you know, submission to a husband. But the idea with the woman shaving her head was you would be associated with being a, a temple prostitute. So it's a you know, if you're, if you're going to have like really short hair or shaved head, you're going to be linked with some sordid folks in the community and maybe you don't want to do that. Now, that's not a, a cultural issue so much for us today, but we, I think within our culture, what are those sort of things? How will I be perceived if I dress this way, cut my hair this way? Will I 
represent God and uphold the goodness of the, the gender that he has made me and how he has ordered things within his creation. So, again, all, all of these things, what's linking them together is the communicating. There's certain things that shouldn't be mixed and should remain pure and ordered as God has made them. Well, what if in verse 6, if you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, says, you, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Well, if you, if you just take mother bird and you leave the baby birds what happens to the baby birds they they die so it's like are, are you respecting life and making that decision it's like well no well what if you just take the younger birds and mama bird lives well mama can still live and she can have more baby birds which means uh more meat birds for you that's the idea they're looking at it as uh food here that's not this is kind of like a, the israelite department of wildlife and game like if you want to keep eating birds you you need to do it this way and not the other way otherwise things will be out of order and uh you won't be able to get a, a tag for birds next year <laughs> well verse eight this is maybe the most famous one that people talk about for whatever reason. It says, when you, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. Well, why, why do you think that that's important in this idea of living in purity and things being ordered correctly? I think having a parapet around your roof where, you know, you would host meals up there or people would stay the night and sleep up there. Yeah, so you're valuing life and there's an order to things. The right order is that you stay on my roof, alive on my roof, not dead and next to my house, right? <laughs> and so, so, you know, think about that. Even in the building of your home, you're uh, valuing life and you're thinking about how can you keep things <laughs> ordered correctly and things going well when you have visitors. Well, in verse nine, it picks up with, you know, the matters of... Uh, a vineyard and not sowing two kinds of seed. I don't know that this was necessarily a superior agricultural practice here, but it made them stand out among the nations and that they did their vineyards different than anybody else, which would lead somebody to, to ask about the hope in them. You know, what's, what's the reason for this? Uh, Mr. Israelite, says Mr. Canaanite, and... Mr. Israelite would explain that God, God has created the world with a, a proper order and there's certain things that aren't to be mixed. You know, our, our God is a holy God, which this is going to end up tying into this vineyard metaphor throughout Scripture. You have this in Isaiah 5 when he sings his popular song to Israel about this great vineyard that this 
guy sets up and has a wonderful security system for it, but all, the, all, the, all that it gives him is nasty grapes. says, what, you know, what should the master of the vineyard do with the, the vineyard since it only gave him nasty grapes? And they say, well, he should just tear it out and build a new one. And Isaiah says, you are the vineyard. You were supposed to be putting forth good fruit, but you've been putting forth bad fruit. But there, there is one who's going to tie his colt or donkey to the vine and cause it to produce his, his fruit. There's prophecy about that. And so you, this ends up tying to, to Jesus explaining how he's the true vine. You know, if you want to not bear nasty fruit, you've got to be tied to, to him. He has to be the, the source of the fruit that comes out of your life. Verses 10 and 11, you have these, you know, you're, you're not plowing an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, not wearing wool and flax together. I have no idea what that feels like. I don't know if it's like really itchy or something like that. <laughs> but it, it was to teach them, you know, even when I think about, you, you can think about this is, you know, the, the people of God in their infancy. And they're being taught like children because they're children. They needed very basic things taught to them like the how you dress matters you should think about god even when it comes to putting on your clothes in in the beginning of the day uh, you should think about god and how even when it comes to every meal that you eat yeah, he's involved in everything and has a particular order for everything in his creation so he's helping them to be devotional even in their clothing to be put in remembrance of, uh, I, I'm to live holy to the Lord, to live set apart to him in everything that I do. And I'm even reminded of, you know, of that when I'm put, putting on my clothes. Verse 12 says, you, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garments with which you cover yourself now, when we read that, it's just kind of a curious sort of statement, but for Israel at this point, it came in a context that links back to Numbers 15. If you just want to take a note on that, you can read that later. Numbers 15.32 is where it starts. That there was a guy who collected wood on the Sabbath, and they had to stone him to death. Well, uh, the text says Yahweh also spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh. So, I mean, this is right on the other side of the wood collector guy being stoned. And you think, well, how, how does that not happen to me? Like, how can I remember to not do that? Just put a tassel on your garment to remind you. So you, you know, you're starting to, to walk out toward the wood pile on the Sabbath and you see those tassels and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> I remember what happened to that, that one guy. And this puts me in reminder that uh, I'm to... Remember all the commandments of Yahweh so as to do them. He says, and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God. 
who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh, your God. You can't mix in other practices, even if you think it's expedient or good or you think, well, it'd be totally innocent for me to go out and uh, get some wood right now. Say, well, you were told that it wouldn't be, that it would be uh, an issue because God is wanting to, to teach you something through all of this. So that guy, he mixed into the Sabbath something that didn't belong there. And the tassels were to be a reminder to, to keep the pristine, to keep what is pure in every way possible. That certain things aren't to be mixed together for the sake of purity because of how God has made things. And now the sort of transition gets us you know, immediately into you know, this topic of adultery in verse 13, it begins there. It says, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and brings forth against her a bad name and says, I took this woman when I came near her. I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate and you can see here coming into this passage, you know, this, this man claims that uh, his, his wife isn't a virgin. Well, you, you have, you know, two, two ways this could go. Either there's, there's no evidence for that or there, there's evidence for it. It's like, well, what if there's no evidence? Well, the parents can provide contrary evidence. And if so, then this man is chastised before the elders. You know, likely he's beaten by them, and then he's fined. And he's fined a hundred shekels, which probably doesn't really mean anything to you. So I tried to do some calculations to make it make sense to you here. Uh, David spent 50 shekels to buy the, the threshing floor to build the temple mount. So 50 shekels buys you a piece of property. That's at the very end of 2 Samuel. So a property price around here, we'll just go with 500000 You know, that's pretty average around here if you wanted to live in Meadow Vista. That's probably actually kind of cheap. <laughs> but 500000 you have that times two, this guy's getting fined a million dollars. Now, most people around this time would only make a half, half a shekel a month. So that's six shekels a year. To pay a hundred, that's sixteen point seven years. If you have zero other expenses, but if you're a fellow and you're buying a piece of property, you know at fifty shekels. Also, I'm working to do that. My calculations would take you at a minimum thirty-three point four years to pay this fine, if not more. But the the idea here that it's shown is that if you make this false accusation about another woman's holiness, it, it could cost you your life. Like, you're going to have a fine that you might pay for the rest of your life. So you better make sure that you're right about this and not just flippantly make statements like this, you know, in, in this case, about one's wife, or you're going to get hit with two 30-year mortgages. You're going to pay for two places at half a million, and you won't get a place. You'll just pay for it, but you won't have one. But if you want one, you've got to make even more money than that on top of that. 
But you see what that's doing? As I've said, laws teach values. And the value of purity is so high that if you were to, to say something or do something that would devalue somebody who's actually living in purity, it's going to have implications for the rest of your life. He said, this is how serious you should take these sort of accusations, which I think it, it leads us to ask ourselves, you know, do, do we have this high of a view of sexual purity? We think, yeah, that, that's absolutely fair. If a guy was to say that and to, to be wrong, something like this should happen to him because this, this is so valuable. Well, what if there, there is evidence? Why don't you go on and read in that text? It says, if, if the man's claim is proved true, she's to be stoned at the doorway of her father's house. Now, why is it that she's stoned at the doorway of her father's house? Well, because the father's house has been defiled because something happened there that was out of order, that, that wasn't according to how... God wanted things to be. The pristine order of how things should be hasn't been preserved. And so it has to be made right some, somehow. Something impure has been mixed in and must be purged out. Now, for Israel in thinking through these sort of issues, when it, when it came to you know, adultery, sexual deviancy, it was just, you know, everybody was doing those sort of things in the ancient Near East, especially within the pagan religions that were around them, which they weren't just around them, they were practicing them. You know, even at this time in Scripture, God's trying to teach them to not do those sort of things that they had learned in Egypt. But most pagan religions surrounding them that influenced them had this sort of fertility religions where they thought, you know, if, if they were pornographic, that would make the gods pornographic, and then they would procreate, which turns into rain, which turns into us having crops. But you can see there, they had a very low view of sex. It's just something you do that gets you more food, ultimately, somehow, from the gods. But sometimes I think we, we miscommunicate you know, the, the value of sex in marriage, when we make a statement like this, we say, sex is good, but wait until marriage. And in that way, we kind of separate out two entities. You know, you have sex over here and then marriage over here, and sex is good, but you should wait until marriage. But within Scripture, what you see is sex is only in marriage. Uh, outside of marriage, you have immorality, you have harlotry, you have fornication, you have adultery, but you never have sex. It's not the same thing. It's something different because something else has been mixed into it. Therefore, it's unholy and impure because it doesn't uphold the beauty of God's created order. Sex and marriage aren't two separate entities, but sex exist only inside of marriage and it can't be mixed outside of that relationship and be pure or the same thing. Uh, there, there is no sex outside of marriage in scripture. You know, as I mentioned, there's, there's only a destructive counterfeit, but you can't have the same thing that God has ordered because he's ordered it only to belong within the marriage relationship. 
Everything in creation is ordered in a certain way to function in a certain way, and that includes sexual purity. So a father's house, as we talked about in this situation, is where his daughter is supposed to be pure. But if she mixes impurity into the home, then she might die at the doorway of her father's house to get rid of that impurity. So instead of you know, saying to young people or any people, instead of saying you know, sex is good but wait until marriage, we should communicate sex only fits inside of the, the marriage relationship and anything else is impure. There isn't two good things, like sex is good and marriage is good. There's only one good thing, which is sex within marriage. And anything else is impure, a blemish, a stain. It's something that twists the pure. So instead of saying, you know, wait until marriage, we say, this can only be had in marriage. And this is the perfect way. This is the only pure way. This is the only way that fits in accordance with God's design. So we, we should be purist about these sort of ideas. And we have no problem being purist. And you think about a, a coffee purist. And what do we call them? A coffee snob. What about a, a food purist? A foodie? What about tool choices guy? A contractor? <laughs> or truck choice? Which notice that's in the singular, not the plural, because we all know it's Ford. <laughs> now, the reality is we can differ on those things, but when it comes to being a purist, but we, we, we ought not to differ on those things when it comes to purity as it relates to representing the Lord rightly in his creation. We want to be a purist for Christ and for God and how he has ordered things in the world to make sure that we understand them right so that we live them out correctly because we want to ultimately reflect God's holiness. So we can't buy into the world's definitions of sex or marriage. You know, the, the world's always changing how they view those things and what they think is appropriate. But they don't get to define those things. They don't get to tell us how to understand them or how they should be ordered or what, what should and shouldn't be accepted. Only God has the right to do that. Uh, we want to know God's definition for these things, sex and marriage. But when we give into the world, you know, using you know, our terms, but twisting the definition, we, we've already lost the battle because what we've done, we've mixed unbiblical thinking into our worldview. And so we have something that's impure and defiled in our thinking and speaking and potentially our practice as well. So we're... We're desperate to know and to live according to God's definitions and not mix them with anything else, which is you know, why we take the time to you know, study a chapter like this. You know, if, you, if you were a Sunday school teacher and you just picked random lessons to, to, to teach every week, you probably wouldn't think, you know what, I think I'll just teach Deuteronomy 22. This will be a good one. But you know, we want to work through the, the whole counsel of God and to have a... You know, his view on these things, so we're living out his view and according to his structure, 
structure in the world. So enjoy his, his blessing and how he has made things to work. So the logic in this chapter, again, is a, 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 there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And so you're to do what is perfect. Now, sometimes girls, they, they plan their wedding day before they even have a, a guy that might ask them to, to marry them. And they, they want that day to be perfect. And so they, they, they think about it often, what it might be like and the things that they'll do and have. And more important than that, I think we're seeing from this text, is you want to make sure you have a perfect understanding of marriage. That's more important than having a perfect wedding day. You want to have a pure and right view of marriage. You want to understand God's perfect ordering of things in creation. Well, where do you, where do you get God's definition of sex within creation? You can get it all the way back in Genesis 2. He says, the two shall become one. That's it. That's, that's your definition for sex and marriage. That's where you see it. They're, they're both together. They're not two separate things. It's just one thing. Two, two shall become one. So sex exists inside of marriage, and it can't be parted out in separate ways. You know, we see how Leviticus looks back to that in Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy, but they keep rebuilding on that idea. They don't redefine it. They don't say, oh, now... Now we're all the way in Deuteronomy history so we can redefine the, the sexual relationship. It's like, no, it, it stays the same. Uh, it's, we still live under the Genesis 2 God e even though the fall has happened. Things are still supposed to be that way and only that way. Well, in 22, you have these other accentuating circumstances, verses 23 to 24. So, well, what do you do if, if a man rapes a girl in the city and she doesn't cry out? Well, in this case, you know, both of them are, are stoned. And the idea is here is like, well, if, they were, if it happened in the city, she could have valued her life enough to, to have cried out for help and have been helped in that situation. So there's guilt on both of them in that circumstance. But what about 25 to 27? It says, well, what if that happens in the field where no one in the city could hear her? Even if she was crying out, she couldn't be helped. Well, in that circumstance, you know, only, only the man dies. Because when she cried out, there was nobody to hear her and save her. I want you to read verse 26. Here it says, but you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. Now, you can look at that. It doesn't see you know, rape as a lesser offense as a murder. So it's, it's an equal offense. Uh, you should see this as a life has been taken. This is worthy of immediate and capital punishment. Uh, you, you should value purity this much. So you see the life issue here connecting with the purity issue. And you think about that, you know, with, when it comes to life, you're either alive or you're dead. So when it comes to sex, it's either inside of covenant marriage or it's a capital offense. Now, you might ask, uh, 
teenager, you know, if they would murder somebody, and they might say, well, no, I'd never murder somebody. It's like, well, you might ask, well, would you have sex with somebody? Like, I don't know, maybe. Because they don't see, you know, murder and, you know, adultery or impurity on the same level, but they should. Uh, that's the view that God has given us. Uh, you should be just as abhorred to, to murder somebody as you would to commit some sort of immoral act with them. God is teaching us that murder and sexual immorality are equal offenses, which, again, I think it, it, it challenges you know, our view of sex. You know, do we have this high a view? Is our view as high as God's? Do we see it the way that he does, or do we think, eh, that seems like a little bit much because I don't value that as much as you do? Well, I think we, we're wrong if that's the case. You know, God, God is right. And I think this also, it helps perhaps purify and solidify and give us a, a zeal for what is right and holy. Uh, it gives us a, a firmer standing and a worldview and what it is that we're communicating to other people, what we're thinking, what we're teaching children, how we're discipling others. Uh, we want to communicate that we, we have the same view as God on these things. And all of this because it's about his name ultimately. We don't want to treat you know, his name, his character, his will and what he's commanded as, as a light and empty sort of thing. You know, everything in life is about God's holiness. Everything that we do is to image his holiness somehow and as you see in these, you know, crimes of murder and adultery, both crimes violate holiness and purity. They violate God's holiness and purity. And so they get an equal punishment. Well, verses 28 and 29, it gives another circumstance. It says, well, what, you know, what if this girl that's violated, what, what if she's not engaged well, you see that there's a different fine. Instead of 100 shekels, there's 50 shekels. Now, why is it, you know, half for the fine? Well, in this case, there was still a bride price that this guy would still have to pay, which was, you know, a piece of property, which would cost him 50 shekels. And so he's actually in an equal sort of situation because if he's going to have to marry this girl, he's going to have to provide the the bride price to the father, which is 50 shekels, which 50 plus 50 equals 100. Now, where this particular example is different than the first one we looked at, the 100 shekels example, was a, it was a penalty. There was a, a woman that, that she already had a, a protection, you know, financially and culturally within a marriage. She was already married. She already was provided for and protected, but there was... And if the man's accusation against her was false and he gets stoned, there would have to be money left behind for her to be well cared for if that was the case. But now the 50 shekels example here is not so much a penalty as it is a protection for the woman because she, she isn't protected if she's unmarried. And it says of the, the fellow who would do this, it says he, he has to marry her and he can't divorce her, which wasn't 
a punishment for him and this culture, but it was what would happen to the girl if she didn't get married to him was now she, she was defiled forever. Uh, she, she couldn't be married. She couldn't be care, cared for. And this shame would travel with her and she would be an instant outcast for a lifetime. So they were to be married, you know, not for his sake, but more so for hers to protect her within how things worked in this particular culture. So what he's going to do is he's going to pay, you know, the, the half million dollars to make sure that she's well taken care of. And he also has to provide a piece of property, as was the customary bride price. And he ends up still giving the equivalent of the 100 shekels or the million dollars anyway about it here. Because he, he must protect her and care for her from now on. Now, the, the law deals with situations of severe penalty for the offender against purity, but also what if the penalty against the offender proves to harm the victim further? So anything about that? that? That's the other element. It's like, yeah, this guy's a scumbag, and society would be better without him. But, you know, getting rid of the scumbag is going to have a, an effect on, on the victim in this case too. And so we have to take that into account. And though this, this is a wicked situation, uh, we have to figure the best way forward that really cares for everybody. So the, the law teaches, you know, teaches Israel here, you're to keep this guy alive, but keep him alive and enslave him to the family forever. He's enslaved to the father uh, to this woman, and she's, she's going to be taken care of so that shame doesn't come upon her name and she doesn't become you know, a, an outcast and in poverty for a lifetime because of this crime. Verse 30 says, you know, a man, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. You know, his father's wife, that's a, a stepmom. It's the phrase we, or the term we would use. Well, Why? Well, again, it, sex and marriage are one, one entity. You can't violate or mix into uh, another's marriage. It's carrying across that same sort of concept. Now, coming into chapter 23, we, we read there's rules of community membership. That's what I've labeled this, rules of community membership. There's certain kinds of people who cannot enter into community and pervert it at an external community level because their Israel as a society is trying to demonstrate that they prize the holiness of community and how things ought to be ordered. So verse one there, it says, no, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. So this, you know, the term for these guys is uh, eunuch. So this, this isn't how God has uh, ordered things. He has ordered things so that uh, man and woman within marriage can be fruitful and multiply. So it doesn't mean that you know, the, the eunuch is, is a lesser subhuman sort of category. It's like, well, no, he's not lesser, but it just doesn't fit how God has ordered things. He's not a picture of things rightly ordered. Well, you can keep reading on in your Bible because 
you're concerned about this guy and you want to see some compassion shown to him. Isaiah 56 tells us the eunuch can come into the community because there's this guy, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who can make everything right within creation and that there will be a day when the eunuch can come in. There won't have to be this picture that he has to be out because he's outside of the created order, but there's this picture that there is a suffering servant. He's the Davidic king, and he can make even this messed up situation correct. And you see that happen later in the Bible in Acts chapter 8 when you have the Ethiopian eunuch read in Isaiah 53. And then, you know, Philip the evangelist shows up and, Dave's going to preach on that too, which is super cool because I don't have to say a whole lot about it. You just got to keep coming to the main service until we get to that text and you hear the rest. But you'll remember this. You'll remember Deuteronomy 23 and Isaiah 53 and how that's all connected on that day. So what God does in Christ for the eunuch is he, he makes them holy. He makes them right. He brings them into the community The language in Isaiah 53 is he justifies the many, which is a reference to the Gentiles. You you see a distinction in that chapter, what he does for the nation, what he does for the many, the Gentiles. And so so that the community can consist of only holy individuals. You see, even a guy like a eunuch can be made holy in Christ and brought into this community. So the eunuch can join because the Messiah Christ can give him a new holy status in himself, in the community. What you, you, we read about this in Ephesians. You know, that's the church epistle. It talks about those who were far off, you know, Gentiles, and this would include eunuchs that had to be way outside of the camp. It says, you who are far off have been brought near uh, you, you can be around God's worship system in Christ because of what Christ has done. Well, verse 9 and 10 and 11 and following, I have to kind of skim through this. This has to deal with just, the, the camp has to be clean. You know, this is, this, and this is kind of similar stuff to, you know, you don't want gross stuff in your tent. You know, if you're going to use the, the bathroom outside of the camp, take your trowel. Because if you don't, if you don't, you know, bury it, you know, somebody could step in it. And that is not, that is not clean. And so you see, you, you don't, God cares about holiness. He cares about how the camp is, is kept and not mixing in gross stuff. And this includes all the way down to how you use the bathroom. And why, why is this such a big deal? Well, verse 14 says, Since Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. You know, that, this is going to include, you know, Achan when he takes the war spoils into his tent that don't belong there. And Joshua, this includes, you know, bathroom practice outside of the camp. That's well, because God walks among you. And he's seeing what, what's happening. You want to live in a way that's going to, you know, honor his oversight 
over you and that demonstrates that you're a people that, that cares about God being represented as holy, clean, ordered. And this matters all the way from the, the community level to the external level to the private and internal level, which is how this chapter builds out. Well, what if, I'm commenting on verses 15 to 18 here, what if a slave becomes a part of the community? Yeah, maybe they escape slavery from another nation. Maybe uh, it's due to a war that they've come into the nation of Israel. Say, well, how, how do you treat him? Do you treat him like a slave? Well, no, you're not, you're not to treat him uh, like a slave. You know, this is another person who's made in the image of God. Uh, then going on in this, uh, you know, in verse 17, it talks about, you know, the daughters of Israel not being a, a cult prostitute. So when you have an outsider coming in, there's a concern that he's going to bring corruption into the camp. But he also says, look at it from the other way. You can't have an insider going outside and being corrupted. So he's looking at, you know, there, there's an outsider that can come in and be treated like everybody else. And there's an insider that shouldn't go out and start living like everybody else. So a slave, you these. These are two sides of the same coin, is the point I'm making. And they, they relate to holiness and purity and seeing it, it, it's one pristine element. You know, the, the slave is to be able to be transformed from an outsider to an, an insider and assimilated and treated the same as others. Then the inverse being that daughters can't go out outside and bring outside things in. All coming back to that idea there there must be one pristine unmixed thing one pure unmixed thing israel is to be a holy nation you remember that he says you know if you obey what i say you'll be my treasured possession you'll be a kingdom of priests you'll mediate to the world what i'm like and my holy character and you'll be a holy nation a nation that's set apart to knowing me and making me known which this concept applies also to us. You know, every part of our life is to be pristine. Everything is ordered in a way that communicates the holiness of God, how we use our time, how we dress, the things that we choose to eat, uh, how we use our money, how we think about purity, how we go camping, you know, all of it matters. Everything matters. And the way that we demonstrate that we love God is by living in purity, living according to how he has ordered things without mixing it with worldly wisdom. So holiness requires separation unto God's created order, which is clean. Holiness requires separation unto God's created order, which is clean. Any questions as we conclude right there?
just smiles. I can live with that. Well, I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for instruction on how to live in purity, even in how you shepherded uh, the ancient people of Israel so long ago. You are still the God of creation, the only God, and we're still to live by how you have ordered things. I pray that you would help us to have your view of your world when it comes to things like marriage and sex and life so that we would honor you, so that we would disciple one another according to the things that you have taught us to observe and according to your word. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark on such issues. Let you give us sufficient guidance to train us in the righteousness that you desire in us. And we thank you for the Christ who has transformed us to give us a holy status which we could never earn for ourselves. We are holy not because we have obeyed. We are holy because Christ has been gracious for us to give us the crediting of his righteousness to forgive all of our sins by him taking on the death penalty which we deserve. And we pray that you would help us to not take your name in vain, Lord, and how we would live in every aspect of life, recognizing that every decision that we make and everything that we do, whether in private or public or wherever, it matters. It matters greatly because we have the high privilege of representing you, the holy God. So I pray that you help us to make advances in holiness this very day and together in the holy fellowship that you have given us. And we thank you for these things. We give you the praise. Amen.